and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and the forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. I am delighted to be joined today by Dr. Beatrice Gonzalez. Beatrice is the president of Miami-Dade College, the Wolfson campus, a post she has held since 2019. Prior to that, she held senior administrative posts at the University of Laverne in California and St. Thomas University in Florida. She's an ACE fellow, an E. Kika de la Garza fellow, and the recipient of the 2017 Woman of Distinction Award for California's 41st Assembly District for her efforts in promoting educational access and quality. Beatrice is a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida and began her career as a certified teacher and counselor in the Miami-Dade County Public Schools. She holds a bachelor's of uh, degree in English, a master's in counseling, and her PhD in leadership and education. She's been a featured speaker and a panelist for Excellencia in Education, the Alliance for Hispanic Serving Institution Educators, and for our own parent organization, the American Academic Leadership Institute, which is where I had the good fortune and the pleasure of sharing a meal and working with her. Um, um, you uh, have a wonderful personal presence, Beatrice, and I'm really delighted that you are um, uh, willing to be our guest today. So welcome to you. Thank you so much, Jay. That was a very kind introduction. I really appreciate it. and I'm so happy to be speaking with you again. Likewise, likewise. Well, you know, I already alluded to this. Um, uh, you know, you were very generous and, and, and open with me and, and sharing some of your personal story, um, a really compelling family story. And I, 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 I think it is a story that um, I'd like others to hear if you're willing to share. Sure. And I want to say you're, you're such a great listener and asked so many questions to follow up about the story. So I, I appreciate that one that you wanted to know more about me and my family. So thank you for that. Um, so I was born in Havana, Cuba, and I came to the United States with my parents when I was three years old. My parents left Cuba fleeing communism. And I would say that that fact uh, has been fundamental to my family narrative, as well as a recurring theme in my own development and really part of my frame of reference for life. Um, for one thing, my parents always referred to us as people in exile, as did most Cubans who emigrated from the island. So I understood myself as an immigrant, but also as having an identity beyond that carrying a certain responsibility to make their sacrifice mean something. Um, growing up, I did not have memory of my life in Cuba, but I knew it was where my parents met, fell in love, were married, had children, with all the hope that every couple does those things. Um, but then I knew they also tore themselves away from this land that they love to live in freedom. Um, and I think that my understanding of that transition was nuanced too, because um, the way it went down, the way my, my family ended up leaving and their situation on the island before they left, and kind of that sense of nuance is something I carry with me in terms of always looking sort of for the contours of the situation. Yeah, it's that, but it's also this, you know, and I, and I think having that point of view sort of helps me figure things out. Um, but what I mean by that is that my parents started with great hope for the revolution in Cuba. As young, proud citizens of Cuba, they felt that their beautiful homeland had been exploited and bastardized by Batista and foreign capitalists. Um, and as a university student, my dad participated in protests against the government, the Batista government. And he was very hopeful that a Fidel-led movement would bring sovereignty back to Cuba. Um, but that is not uh, how it turned out. Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely, as they say, and soon Cuba became a totalitarian state. Um, over the next several years after the revolution in 59, my parents realized that the future was not going to be what they expected. My dad had a direct relationship with the highest level of government because he reported to Che Guevara, who was Fidel's right-hand man. 
Uh, and as a young architect, my dad was in charge of infrastructure projects and Che was his boss. So he learned very quickly firsthand that there actually was very little regard for the people, that they were merely viewed as, as chattel, as vehicles for the government to accomplish its aims. And little by little, as their freedoms eroded, including religion and choice of education, as they saw their children being indoctrinated to not know God, um, they knew that they had to leave. Um, so my dad left first. Um, he feared, they feared that he would be enlisted in the army and sent away, as was happening with a lot of Cuban young men. Um, so we were separated for a while, for about a year. Um, and like most people, or many stories that you hear of people leaving their homeland, we left with the clothes on our backs. Um, something I didn't mention that night we talked, my dad's um, uh, diplomas were smuggled out for him. And they had dozens of tiny creases in them because of the many folds that had to be put in the paper so that the diploma could get smuggled out. And you can imagine what a constant reminder that was for me then later, once he had it and it was behind a frame, but all those little creases were there. Um, what a reminder of the responsibility, again, to make their sacrifice worth it. Um, my family was fortunate very fortunate compared to others because I had a grandmother who was very unusual for a woman of her time. Uh, she left Cuba in the 50s uh, to pursue writing as a poet. And she published poetry in New York. Um, and so because she was in the US, she was able eventually to claim my dad. And she had a choice, my dad or my grandfather. And she chose my, my dad. Uh, and then uh, eventually my dad was able to claim us. And eventually we were reunited in Mexico. Um, and moved then together to the U.S. And we lived in Brooklyn and Queens when I was a kid growing up. Uh, and then eventually we moved um, to Miami. And so that's, that's kind of the story. But I think, that, um, I think that that exile experience, I think it's true that sometimes, not always, people in that position end up having maybe even a deeper appreciation for your adopted land than maybe some of its own native children. And my parents continually reminded me that I was very fortunate to have an education of my choice, not one that was, that was told what I had to study. I was repeatedly told that this is the greatest country in the world and that all you have to do is, is work hard and you'll get your just rewards. Um, of course, as I grew older and experienced life, I thought I saw that wasn't always so, that there is inequality and injustice. But I think um, that only led me um, to deepen a commitment to make um, the promise of America reality. And I think that that's why I chose education and counseling, because that's part of what education and counseling does. It sheds a light on things, whether it's bigotry or injustice, whatever it may be. So um, that's, I think, probably the seed of where all that comes from. And I think I was also very aware that I had advantages, like my dad had gone to college. And, and so I always had the sense of, okay, well, I need to give back. I'm luckier, luckier than most people. Um, and so that expression, lift as we climb, you know, if you've heard it, that's always kind of in the back of my mind, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. There's so many. Um, thank you um, again for your willingness to share. Um, I, if I'm remembering correctly, um, you still have your dad. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I can't help as we record this in January of 22, um, wonder about um, your dad's sort of interpretation of, of the events of a year ago in DC. And, um, and you know, uh, our democracy, as you just noted, um, continues to be rife and filled with, with inequities and, um, imperfections. Um, and, and how does your dad, someone who really, you know, gave up the life that he knew and sacrificed much to try and create opportunity uh, for you. So I'd, I'd love to hear you reflect a little bit on, on, on being in the middle of, 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 of your dad's generation and that of, of, of your son's. Yeah, it's complicated. It's very complicated, especially here in Miami, where there are so many Cuban exiles, and they really span such a great 
um, age, ages now, as well as periods of when they came and, and what their feelings are about Cuba and feelings about the United States. So I don't really think anymore there's a Cuban immigrant ethos, one, just one anymore. Yeah, that's there's right. A, very big continuum. And I would say my parents probably at, at the start of things were probably much more liberal than others. Um, then the situation with Elian came, the young boy who was sent back yeah. to Cuba. And that kind of, uh, that was so personal for them because they had done the opposite, right? They had taken their children out of Cuba to, to have freedom. And so that felt so personal for them and hurt them so much that then they became much more, you know, sort of conservative and, you know, we need to, to fight this fight even harder. Um, and he was very concerned about me going to Cuba. I worked for a Catholic university for a while that was engaged in a project called the Reconciliation of the Church in Cuba. And really yeah. not trying to get political, but more about um, sharing resources, having a library, about religious topics. You know, that's what it was about. And there was some talk for a while that I might go to Cuba at the university. I might go to Cuba to help them, you know, stand this up. And my dad was very concerned that I'd go. He was very concerned of what might happen to me there. Um, he has been very sort of firm about there should not be relations now after um, Elian. My point of view is different in that I do think cultural exchanges, educational exchanges, that's how people on the island know what freedom looks like. And so to shut all that down, I don't think is the best approach either. I think there has to be some communication and people seeing what could be in order for they themselves to want that and to fight for it um, in their own land. So um, there's definitely a difference of opinion. However, in terms of what happened you know, during our last national election, even though my dad has had more of a conservative point of view, he's also really good at spotting demagogues now, you know, so he um, you know, hey, be careful in a minute, something can happen. You think you're safe here? You think your democracy is safe? Watch out that you always have to be protecting your democracy. Um, so I think that um, he, he always communicates that point of view too, that not to take it for granted because it yeah. can so easily be taken away without uh, really even noticing. It's insidious that way. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is the great experiment, the great American experiment in democracy and, and uh, one that is ongoing. So, uh, again, um, I, you know, I'd flip it for um, uh, go from your dad to your children. And so my son is um, way on the more uh, liberal side. He is, um, yeah, things should be shared. Information should be flowing. I mean, he, a, a child, you know, children who've grown up in a digital world where all this information is so free flowing. Um, it's interesting. I, things that we think are remarkable and make a big deal about it, for example, athletes who now are protecting their mental health. Right. And, and like, oh, we, we salute them because, yes, it's important to take care of yourself and not sacrifice your whole being, you know, for your sport or work or something like that. And my son said to me over the holidays, you know, I don't get it. And I know he was being facetious in a sense because he does get why, but I don't get it. Why are they making such a big deal about it? That's the way it should be. People should take care of those protect themselves and their wellness. And, and I'm like, I had to say, yeah, you're right. Um, I guess we're just not there yet uh, as a society. And so it's remarkable when people have the insight to do that and to make a statement about it, to be a model for other people. Um, but I think that, that that point of view is so important for us to keep in mind in education that the folks that we're preparing see the world very differently in terms of how to engage with the world. Um, what we give and what we ought to expect back. Um, so I, I think that's a way that all of us as employers and um, cultures have to be thinking about that, you know, relating to people who really have this different worldview that, um, you know, my, my safety, my wellness is important too. And it also has to be um, highly valued in whatever organization I'm a part of. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, and, you know, um, uh, from that um, uh, immigrant exile perspective, um, I think I know about some of the people and events, but uh, move your life forward. How did you end up on the path that led you to becoming um, a college president? And, and what were the, uh, what were the 
who were the who were the people and and the events that might have helped um, discern that path for you? Um, well, I'm I'm going to say that that started with a neighbor across the street because um, she worked for a cruise line, and one day she so she was a supervisor at a cruise line, and one day she was missing staff, so she came across the street and knocked on the door early in the morning on a Saturday um, to see if my sister, my older sister, wanted to fill in. And my sister didn't want to go. And I was standing right behind her, you know, like, what's happening? What's happening? Uh, and when my sister said, no, I don't want to go, I said, oh, I'll go. I didn't really think she'd take me. I was 14 or something like that at the time, but she did. I think she must have been really desperate for somebody to do some typing that day. So um, I went along with her and it was one of the best things I've ever done. I worked at that job at this cruise line, a major cruise line since I was 14, all the way through my PhD. Um, because it was a great job to have as a student. And um, I worked first weekends preparing the ratings. You know, you fill out those common cards when you go places. Well, I can't speak for every business, but at least that cruise line read every single one because I was part of a team that produced the ratings for every cruise, read all the comments, collated, sent them back to the ship before sailing. But some of the great things about that job, number one, it involved technology. And I wasn't going through school with technology. I'm that, that old, <laughs> it wasn't part of my classroom instruction. But what I learned, because later they made me a computer operator at night, what they used to call a California shift. Now everything is 24 hours, right? But back then, you know, six o'clock was the end of the day, but we had a California shift that worked, you know, later till 11 p.m. to, to handle those West Coast calls. Um, and so they taught me what to do with this com gigantic computer at the end of the day and run all that end of day stuff. But what I learned is it's really hard to break it. You know, you, it's, you have to be doing a lot to break a computer. So it took away that fear, that anxiety that, you know, I might have had had I not yep. had that opportunity. But it also taught me a ton about efficiency, communication, delivering, delivering on time, um, how business does things. Um, eventually, I, as the cruise line expanded, I was sent to New York to set up the same operation we were doing in Miami with the um, comic cards in New York City. And here I was, because I had started there at 14, here I was 19, um, being flown to New York, meeting with the captain of the ship. This is what we're doing. We're setting it up. And so it taught me about, you know, grace under pressure, coping with responsibility. Um, so that was a terrific, terrific job um, that really set me up well, I think, as a professional. And then after that, I, I finished my English degree and I became a high school English teacher and I taught ESOL. Um, and that was really great because I worked at a place called Hialeah High School that has a very, very, very large population of recent immigrants. So it really reconnected me um, to my purpose, you know, to my own background. And so it was, again, a reminder of that lift as we climb. You know, I was there with my people, people who had gone through very similar things as my family and probably um, with less resources. So that was a great job for that, you know, rooting me well, you know, in my own history. Um, then I got a master's in counseling. I became a counselor there. And one of my professors was very, uh, was a member of the, the county school system. And he told me about a leadership, internal leadership development program I had never heard of. And he suggested I go through it. And, and I'm sure he helped get me into it. Um, behind the scenes. Um, and I'm sure I wouldn't have done it if he had not um, and told me about it, encouraged me, um, helped me get through it. So, and that was probably my first sort of formal lean into some sort of professional leadership. Um, then I, you know, like school, like studying. Um, and I started my PhD with the thought that, you know what, I love teaching so much. I'm going to teach the rest of my life. And, and that's how I'm going to fulfill my purpose, you know, contributing that way. Um, so I was hired at um, St. Thomas University here in Miami as a professor of counseling. And, you know, I get enthusiastic about things, Jay. So um, I just started participating, you know, as the, in different projects. But then what happened, and I had only been there maybe two years, um, there were, I was engaged in an interdisciplinary project. And um, this included two feuding departments. Uh, you know, imagine that in academia, feuding departments, right? So. Um, I ended up in the role of me, maybe because I was from the counseling department and part of this project, mediating a conversation amongst those departments regarding a reorganization. Um, 
And I think they must have thought that I was expendable. I was a junior faculty. I wasn't tenured, you know, so I, ah, if it blows up in her face, whatever, she'll be gone. Um, but, you know, I had no idea of those things at the time. So I'm just marching along, you know, sure, I'll help. So the upshot was that I wrote a report with recommendations uh, about what to do. And I remember I had just learned it in my doctoral program. So I based the analysis on Lewin's force field analysis model for change. Um, so I'm like, oh, this is great. See, going to school pays off. <laughs> if you learn things, you can apply. Um, and that report, of course, went to the provost and eventually the president. And it was right about the time that we had to start our self-study for the reaffirmation of accreditation, the decennial self-study. And so off of that report, they asked me to be the self-study director. And that was a great, great experience. Nothing like it in terms of, you know, that was like going to school. It taught me everything really about running an institution. That was back when, um, SACS, Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, had the 500 must statements, like many of the accrediting body, very prescriptive, but 500 statements. Imagine going through it. Uh, you really, I, I don't know finances the way the CFO, but I then understood, but this is what it should look like. It needs to have this. This ought to be going on. So that was a great, great experience. And then that led me to become a reviewer for SACS for the next 10 years. And a great experience. I'd recommend that to anybody to, you know, speak with your provost, president to see if you can get on a review team. You learn so much. You learn, of course, from the institution you're studying, but you're part of a team. So you're also hearing what all the other team members have to say about, oh, well, at my place, we do it like this. We do it like that. So you're just gleaning all this wealth of information about how things are, could, could be run, are run. Uh, so that was super helpful. And then what we realized while we were doing the self-study is that we didn't have a planning function. We really didn't have a planning office. So I became the planning director and we, we and, and you know, think back, this is a while back where a lot of institutions really didn't have that as a formal function, you know? So um, we started our, our planning and assessment office. And again, that, that led to a lot of learning for me about that area, uh, good assessment, um, consistent improvement, all of that. Then I was asked to be um, the undergraduate dean, and that put me in daily contact with other departments that I had learned about more theoretically as a self-study director, but now, you know, hashing out things with the registrar and department chairs. And um, so, this, so the, the very practical application of what I had just spent three years studying. And um, when sort of all that was through the self-study and I had started as this undergraduate dean, the president, Monsignor Casal, St. Thomas University at the time, asked me what I wanted to do next. And, you know, I was just helping out in my mind. Oh, there's a project. I'll help out. OK. I really wasn't seeing it as a stepping stone to something else. And so when he said, what do you want to do next? I was thinking very practically, like with the files. And I start, well, I'm going to send them to archives. And, and, and he was like, no, 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 no. What do you want to do with your work life? What are you doing with your career? And he said, before really I could answer, he said, you know, not many people think about being a president ahead of time. Well, I don't know, maybe Bill Clinton said, but, um, uh, and so a lot of people don't, but I think you could be a really good college president, which that kind of blew me away. I had, that thought had never occurred to me. I never thought of that, that that was my plan. I really thought, you know, I was doing this faculty life. Okay, now some administration, but that was never part of a plan. And, and he said that, and he said, I would, I would like to recommend to you, I think you should apply for the ACE Fellows Program. Something else I had never heard of before. You know, I mean, I, remember, my parents are not from this country. They didn't go to school here. Um, my mom didn't go to college. So this was not, you know, I didn't know people who knew these things. And so he talked about that. And I'm so grateful to him because, you know, it's, it's a Catholic school, but it's not Notre Dame. They don't have a lot of money. And for him to, to pay what he paid for me to go to the program, and then to pay my salary for a year when I wasn't there to do the work, um, that was very, very generous. And um, I'm very grateful to him for that. Uh, and it was such a tremendous learning experience. Again, learning from my fellow fellows, all the schools we went to, um, great learning experience. My placement was at the University of Miami with Dr. Donna Shalala, who was super, you know, she's, she's tough, right? She's tough. She's deliberate. She's, she's that way. And yet um, there's such kindness in her. And I'll tell you a little story about that. Uh, so I did my fellowship there. I think it was 0405. 
And then um, it wasn't until 2013 that I was heading to California for this, for another position. And um, I went to see her. I went to say goodbye, you know, before, before I left and told her I was going to California. Oh, good for you. Good for you. You know, a lot of people who live in Miami don't leave Miami. You know, it's, it's lovely. What is there to leave? You know, uh, But, you know, it's good to go other places and all of that. And she was very happy for me. Okay. So I must have done that a couple of months before I left. Uh, but I told her the date I would start my new job. When I arrived at my new office in California, there was this amazingly beautiful orchid arrangement there. But what was cool about it, it wasn't, it was so remarkable that she had made a note to remember when I was starting and all of that and the kindness of these flowers for me. Yes. But she wrote a note that said, with great uh, respect and admiration, Donna Shalala. And I knew that, yes, she had done it for me, but she did it for me saying like to have my back so that the other people who saw that note, Donna Shalala admires and respects her. You know what I mean? She did that for me. And to have the thought of like, I'm going to set her up. (laughs) We're going to send this note. We're going to send these flowers. I thought was, was so thoughtful. Um, So she's been a a wonderful mentor, you know, ever since that um, fellows experience. The other thing that was great about ACE is that it connected me to the office of women. I know they're structured a little differently now and it's not exactly like that, but there was this office of women. And um, so I finished my fellowship year and I'm like, oh, office of women. I don't think they have one in Florida. And they didn't. It, it had sort of fallen, you know, had gotten dark there. And uh, so I resuscitated the Florida network. And so the following year, I go to the ACE meeting a couple of days earlier to go to the office of women meetings because I wanted to work on this Florida network. And so I'm checking in at the desk and a woman named Josie uh, Baltodano, who is now at UC Berkeley, and she was, you know, she'd been a university president, she's part of the Office of Women, she's on the board, just was very friendly. Oh, what are you doing here? Haven't met you before. Um, and I explained, oh, I'm here for the Office of Women meeting, and I'm hoping to work, you know, with the Florida Network. You're going to the women's dinner tonight, aren't you? And I said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. She took out her checkbook. That This is back in the time of checkbooks. She took out her checkbook. And right there, as I was registering, she wrote a check for the dinner for me that night. Um, and, I, and, I, and I say that because it's these little things. And it was a big thing. You know, that's her money. And I'm a stranger. And she did it. But, you know, the flowers with the note for others to see and paying for the dinner that night for me to, to, to gather me into that group, you know, and before I had to go to meetings the next day, you know, these people seeing you and offering you these kindnesses, you know, that just make such a difference. Um, so when I came back uh, from uh, the AC fellowship, I became chief of staff. That's what the president asked me to do. Marketing was under me. So now I'm learning marketing, you know, something I didn't know before. And then eventually what happened was things weren't going well in student affairs and, uh, you know, just really losing a lot of money in housing. They were having some problems. Uh, that person um, went away. And then he asked me if I would become the person over student affairs, um, which also included athletics, enrollments, you know, that that whole bag. And then I kept also my planning responsibilities. So eventually I was the vice president for planning and enrollment there at that university. Um, Just learned so many things. But then um, I started feeling stagnant that, okay, maybe you're not learning as much anymore Um, and kind of itchy to do something different. My son was just about college age. And he was thinking of going to the West Coast. And he said, Mom, why don't you apply for schools on the West Coast? And um, I thought, yeah, okay, why not? Let's apply to schools on the West Coast. But again, you know, the value of networking, I was at an AC meeting, an office of women thing. And there was a woman who's president of the University of California, who was looking for a vice provost. One thing led to another, I applied for the job, and it just happened super fast. I think I applied in March, I was interviewing in May, and I started that job like in July or something like that. So um, it just kind of speaks to uh, the importance, you know, of being with people, being part of a network, um, communicating about what you're interested in, um, because things just kind of presented themselves. So then I was out in California as a vice provost supporting all the things that have to do with teaching and learning. So sponsored research, IRB, um, advising, career services, community engagement, all, all of that kind of thing. But then the, CI, the, the CDO, the chief diversity officer left abruptly. And they asked me if I would be willing to take that on because I was always, I've always been engaged in equity and justice work. It's important personally. 
And I said, okay. <laughs> so I, so um, I became the vice president host and chief diversity officer. Um, and I think all those things happened really just by being engaged, you know, and enthusiastic about what I was doing that brought opportunities, which brought more learning, which brought more capacity, that brought more opportunities. So that's, that's sort of it, a, a story of saying that. <laughs> Really, really extraordinary. And yes, um, uh, I really appreciate your starting at age 14 um, and, and being curious and being willing. And, and by the way, it sounds like your work um, uh, was both, um, you know, in, in, in so many ways, it strikes me as you became a social science researcher in that moment, reading these comment cards. Yep. I mean, how closely that is tied to the work that we try and do and understanding the experiences of people in so many settings and, um, and how that fed upon itself and the value and the importance of, of having um, champions, uh, people to affirm. Um, uh, that, and, I, and I know that, that is, uh, that's a consistent story for um, all who've been blessed uh, to be leaders. So. Yeah, I, thank you. I, I want to flip to, a, a, I like to ask people, what makes a good leader? And by good, I, I always say, I don't mean grade B, but I mean someone who is virtuous, effective, successful in, in, in both leading and bringing, you know, a change in progress to the organization. Gosh, Jay, the, the list is endless almost, right? There's so many important qualities to good leadership. Um, I think a very important quality is you have to be brave because I think um, you have to push the envelope sometimes, push the envelope for quality, push the envelope for justice. And that takes courage to be able to do that. And I think being brave, having courage enables other virtues like honesty and integrity. You have to have a measure of courage to be honest, to be a person with integrity. So I think you have to be willing um, to uh, face challenge, face pain and tolerate it. So that, that's part of it. I think, and maybe it's sides of the same coin, I don't know, but I think it's super important to be humble um, a humble person listens, a humble person accepts responsibility, upholds other people, um, is open to being challenged, um, is not trying to um, prove, their, prove themselves on the back of someone else. Someone told me recently, because I was apologizing for interrupting them, and they responded with a very kind thing, and they said, you know, there was another leader here who said to me one day, and they were serious. What have you done to advance my legacy today? And I thought, wow, that's really something that some folks view leadership that way, that it's about others doing something for them that makes them important. So I think um, when we're humble, we've got to do our best work. And I think compassion, you know, compassion um, to want to relieve the suffering of others because First, you have to see the suffering, right? You have to have that empathy to say you're going through something, you're having a problem, and then you need to do something about it. And I think the very best leaders, what they're really doing is clearing the path for other people. They, they're seeing that obstacle. They see that this person is confronting something that's a challenge, that it's hard. And as their leader, um, part of what you do is get that stuff out of the way. So these superstars can do this great work. Um, so I think compassion too is important. Um, I love it. So, you know, compassion, empathy, bravery, courage, um, um, being humble. Um, uh, wonderful, wonderful. Um, you know, when you are, uh, I, I guess, and may, maybe this speaks to my own limitations, but wow, I, uh, I, 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 I look back and um, people will say leadership is lonely. Um, I have to say um, that I never felt lonely. And I think it was because I was surrounded by people um, and, and a team. And, um, you know, I, I uh, want to hear what your thoughts are about what you look for in the members of your team. Well, um, you know, to be honest, the very first thing is confidence. And um, that can be hard. Because um, 
perhaps you have someone doing a job and they're doing okay, or maybe someone's in an interim position, they're doing okay, um, but they're not ready for that job. And even though you have great regard for them um, and, and you want to encourage them and, and find a path for them, they may not be ready for that job. And, and I think you owe it to the rest of the team, to everyone that, that you're leading, to make sure that you have a competent leadership team. And so it can't be necessarily your sorority sister's cousin or someone who you know, because you owe those people a competent team. So the first thing is confidence. Um, next, you said it, I'm curious. I want to be with curious people who are interested in solving uh, problems, flexing problems. And that, that curiosity leads them to think of new things. They're not the same old thing or maybe the same old thing, but revised. So a curious mind is important. Um, I do look for folks who there's evidence of empathy. You know, what, what, how, what can they talk about empathy? How have they displayed that before? Um, I look for people builders. So people who are who want to coach, who want to promote others. And again, you know, when I interview, I always um, try to take a very behaviorally based approach. Tell me a time when you talk about how you, you know, to really give concrete examples of what's been done as opposed to just sort of theoretical ideas. Um, I also like people with a sense of humor. Um, you know, sometimes I say different reasons, like, you know, no one's on the operating table right now. We have that luxury. Thank goodness. We're in a job where right now there's nobody on the operating table. And I say that for a few things. Number one, you always have time to talk to someone. You're trying to make a decision. You're trying to move something. Sometimes we go ahead and do it without talking to all the people we ought to talk to because we anticipate a conflict and we don't want to do that. So we just move forward. But no one's on the operating table. You have time to go talk to the people you need to talk to. That's part of your job. But also because if something goes wrong, thank goodness, you know, no, we, we're not in a life or death situation. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off. We're going to move forward. We're going to learn from what just happened. And then we're going to move forward. So people who don't take it all too seriously, that yes, we are super fortunate, blessed to be doing work um, that is a privilege to help build other people. Um, but you know what? It, it, in the end, it, it's uh, we have to keep a sense of humor about it. We have to keep joy in it. Um, or else we're not going to do a good job for other people. So I think that's important. Those are some of the things I look for. Awesome. Um, you know, I, I always have in my mind um, our participants in AALI's leadership development programs and frankly those of uh, and other um, leadership development programs. But I, and I, you know, I always want to create the space um, uh, for our guests to offer a word of, of advice to new leaders, to those who are thinking about or aspiring to lead. And I'm sure they've heard so much already. So uh, hopefully I, I won't write or anything like that. But um, well, I think the first thing is um, to be authentic. Um, I really believe that your true self is your best self. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we all don't have things to work on. I do. Um, but I think who you really are is who people want to see show up. And if you are that person day after day, good times, bad times, people will trust you then. Um, and when things aren't so good, they'll get behind you. They'll get behind the issue. So I think being authentic, really being you, I think that's really important. Um, secondly, don't get full of yourself. Um, everybody falls. And if you propped yourself up real high, it's going to be a very hard landing. Um, so, you know, I was at a, an event recently, um, as we have in academia, where we were wearing regalia. And I saw this one person had um, an office assistant, so a person whose office, their job is to do office things, not to be a, a personal dresser or a lady in waiting or something, hold the regalia while this other person at, ate a bag of potato chips. And the woman just sat there holding the regalia by the shoulders until this other person was ready to put it on. And I was like, whoa, what did that woman go home and say to her family, to her fellow workmates about, I had to stand there holding this robe until those chip bag of chips were done, you know? So don't, don't get too full of yourself. We're just all people and put on your own clothes. So uh, next I would say, um, you know, be open to opportunity and then be prepared to work, um, to deliver. So opportunities will come to you and you don't have to take them all. In fact, be judicious, don't overextend. But yeah. the ones that you take, be prepared to work and deliver. That, that's gonna say who you are. 
I'd say find a, a group, a network that really resonates with you. Apologies for that. Um, because not every group will. So I think you have to find if it's a woman's group or in your discipline or um, black leaders, whatever it might be, but some sort of network that, that can be a team for you and, and a space for you where you feel comfortable and, and people you can um, get ideas from and can support you. I also think sometimes you have to go sideways to go forward. Um, maybe you do a lateral move. Maybe you need to get out of the situation you're in right now. Maybe you need to shine in front of other people. And, you know, every context is different. So you're still going to learn, even if it's the same job. So some people don't want to go sideways. Oh, it always has to be forward, forward, forward. But I think sometimes a lot is gained by going sideways. Um, I, and I mentioned a little bit before, fail fast. You know, we're all going to fail, but make it quick. You know, learn from it, get up and, and move forward. And lastly, view the success of your people, the people who are on your team as your success. Anything they do that's great is, 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 is great for you, is great for your institution. Don't be jealous of your own people. The best thing you can ever do is, you know, surround yourself with superstars um, because they're, they're going to make it all work. It's going to make um, work so much better and you're, you're going to get to your goals. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I want to move into a lightning round. Um, uh, we're, uh, you can make the, quest, uh, the, the answers as long as you want, but uh, quick question. Who most influenced you? Um, I have to say my mom, my mom, um, just a beautifully kind person, not that she didn't get mad sometimes and we didn't get in trouble, but always a person with joy and interest and curiosity about other people. So that kind of showing up happy, um, it was beautiful and it was very fortunate that she was my mother. So I'm going to say my mom. Can't go wrong with that. What book is most influential? That, so it's almost unfair to ask that of an English major. Mm -hmm. uh, it's um, and and if I could cheat a little bit, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I love Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the writing itself because I really like that magical realism. You know, I like a good mystery and, and thriller too, but magical realism really I like it when I'm reading just for fun. And you know, he has so many books, but beautiful books: A Hundred Years of Solitude and Love in the Time of Cholera. And What's amazing about those two books, how he approached life and living and being human in two totally different ways. In a hundred years of solitude, it's like a big tree with branches and branches that keep going off and off and off with a million leaves. In Love in the Time of Cholera, it's the opposite. It's like one trunk that he goes deeper, 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 deeper down to the roots. And it's just about two people. And so I just thought it was amazing how he could look at life in these two totally different ways. Um, so that just, I just think it's cool. But I think a book that professionally and also in my life helped a lot is a book called A Guide to Possibility Land, um, 51 Methods for Doing Brief, Respectful Therapy um, by Bill O'Hanlon and a woman named Sandy Beetle. And it's a tiny little book. And um, I first read it years and years ago in my counseling program when I was getting my master's in counseling. And what was great about it is that it showed you how to work with a client with great respect and really engage in the experience and their feelings they're having at the moment, not minimize it at all, be true to that, but at the same time, um, reassure them of the possibility. And so he will do things like saying, you know, how somebody says, oh, you're depressed. He would never say that, oh, you're depressing right now. Like you're in a state of being depressed. You are not depressed. So always that there is this potential for being something different. Um, you don't have to be stuck in what you are right now. And so besides how helpful it is, you know, on a very um, action-oriented counseling point of view, um, just personally to keep that in mind, you know, and, and sometimes when I might be down on myself, oh, Beatrice, you blah, blah, blah. No, that just happened right now, but that's not who you are or what you have to be in the future. So I think that that's a great little book. Awesome. Wonderful suggestion. Thank you. Um, uh, favorite memory of your undergraduate experience? Uh, so it wasn't like a club or something fun like that. It was a class called uh, Reading in the Content Area. So I majored in English and I minored in secondary school education. Um, and this class was about how um, reading is acquired, how it's assessed, how as a content area teacher, do you also teach reading or incorporate reading and help the people understand what they're reading. But that professor was a 
perfect model of all good things about teaching. She just taught so, so well and brought people out who weren't participating or it was just so well done, lesson and assessment. And because of the content of the course and how well she explored it, it made me such a better mother because I remembered all these things then when I had a child and and how you build a good reader. And I did all those things. So I think besides how it helped me be a good English teacher, it just helped me be a really good mom uh, by observing her behavior, both as a teacher, but also about the, the process of becoming a reader. Love it. Uh, favorite campus tradition, someplace that you've worked or attended? I think that that would be a midnight breakfast during exam week. And I think um, plenty of schools have that tradition where you offer students, residential students, um, uh, breakfast in the, about 1 a.m., something like that, during finals week. And we serve, right? All the people who work there serve. But, and it was great to see them in their, they come in their pajamas and they're so tired, poor things. But what was super beautiful about it is watching my colleagues who had other positions, right? So the dean of students or director of athletics and to view their relationships with the students, you know, that were so warm and so supportive. Um, You know, I was just so proud of my colleagues. It's so beautiful to see that, that they were in love with their purpose and in love with the students that they were serving. You're so right. Um, Those are are precious experiences. They're reminders of of why we are there to serve and, and, and who we serve. And, um, and I do think they're more human. Uh, it, they are real human um, uh, relationships that are at the heart of student success, you know, in a fundamental way. Um, you. Um, you know, if you hadn't worked in higher ed, you have other paths um, uh, unexplored that, that, that beg at you ever. If I hadn't, and it's hard to think of something else, and maybe you would have done more with counseling, but I, if I were to go totally different than counseling education, I think it might have been something like interior design. I like things to be beautiful, but I also like them to work. So something that includes that. In fact, recently I was noodling around because I'm interested in getting a certificate in UX design, user experience design. I just thought it would be interesting, you know, to learn those concepts, kind of brings together these things, psychology, people's experience, technology. So kind of have an interest in doing something like that. Love it. Well, one of, one of our traditions in this, uh, in this program is to invite our special guests to share, if you will, the organizational DNA um, of, of your institution. So tell us, if you would, um, about the, the, the organizational DNA at, at Miami-Dade College, the Wolf, Wolfson campus? Well, it's a very large institution, uh, about 120,000 students, eight campuses. This campus where I am, the Wolfson campus, is downtown Miami, which is has it's been bustling for a very long time, but particularly now we have so many people that are moving here uh, from all over the country, particularly California, New York. And so there's a, a, a great boom here in terms of all kinds of different development. And I, it's great. It's great to be here in the heart of the city with all the, the excitement that comes with being in a city. It's also beautiful because we're two blocks from the bay. So they very nicely equip the campus with some terraces uh, in the building. So if you just need a little mental health break, you go out on one of those terraces, take a nice deep breath and see the, the ocean. And it's just beautiful. Um, but I think what's really compelling is that it is a, an access institution. It's here to make dreams come true, to provide opportunity to people who may not have it otherwise. And sometimes people might have the idea, oh, well, you know, they're lucky they're able to, to get this education. And, and so we don't have to worry about giving them the best. But that's not the attitude here. You should see the equipment, the classrooms. Fantastic. Because Yes, everybody deserves the best to learn the best ways. And so here people can really find the latest tools within any kind of technology and gaming and cybersecurity. We have a cybersecurity center. Um, we're about to open an artificial intelligence center. So it's really the state of the art tools that students would use if they were to go out in the workforce. And I think that's also some of the, the really great things about community colleges, very engaged with the workforce, really learning what people, what the workforce, what society needs right away and jumping on it, acting quickly. So 
I'm proud that we're, we're able to do those things for our community and, and for the students. And if I could just say one other thing about this, maybe to tie it all together, because um, I'm going to share this because it's, it's um, related to my family history and, and where I am here now um, at the Wilson campus of Miami-Dade College. Um, the college owns a few historical properties, and the most prominent of these properties is something called the Freedom Tower. And it's a beautiful historic building on Biscayne Boulevard overlooking Biscayne Bay. Um, and it happens to sit on this campus where I serve, so it's my responsibility to care for it. And it's known as the Ellis Island for Cubans because it is where the first waves of Cubans were processed when arriving in the U.S., where they got their documents, got rations. And it was where I was processed when I came to the United wow. States. So I have a picture of myself standing in front of the Freedom Tower at three years old, wearing a dress that is way too short because it's all I had. And that 50 years later, I am now its steward is a gift that I cannot quite describe to you, Jay, but it certainly um, grounds me and it continuously reminds me of my purpose. So it's a very special wow. space. Uh, that is, that's awesome. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm struck by the beautiful way that you have um, weaved this entire um, interview together. Um, and it begins with that immigrant story and with the perspective of being in exile and returns to a place of being deeply grounded um, when you and your family first arrived here. I also want to call out and say that I think you told a story that called upon two of the really distinctive dimensions of American higher education, the role of accreditation. It is a peer-based program in which we you know, assure the, the public's trust um, in a very different way than is done anywhere else in the world. And you're in the service of the truly distinctive uh, form of higher education born here before anywhere else in our community colleges. So I, I just wanna say thank you so much for, uh, for being with us and for so generously sharing your story and your thoughts, your insight, and your wisdom. Oh, it's such a pleasure. A pleasure to talk with you. I really enjoyed it. Um, thank you for your interest. Um, and it's been great. Well, and we will, we will see one another again. Uh, listeners, I want you to know we welcome your suggestions and your thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast on the Academic Research website or wherever you find your podcast. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. It has been a really special joy to host Beatrice Gonzalez on our program today. Thank you once again for joining us, Beatrice. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Thanks so much.